And you're listening to Brian Girls Do It. And we are back again. And this time we have a guest. If you'd like to introduce yourself. Hello, my name is Takunda. I am a friend of ICRA, but we go way back through our Newcastle days. Um, and I'm a medical student currently. I really recently realised how long ago. Um, so long. Because <laughs> um, Facebook gives you those reminders that are like, oh, seven years ago you did this. And I'm like fully on the cusp of an existential crisis now thanks for that lads um, <laughs> but yeah <laughs> I My pleasure. That, like, it's been like 10 years since high school and I was like like it makes sense it, like it makes sense but it also doesn't make sense it feels like the math <laughs> isn't mathing. oh absolutely um yeah it, it, it's just the fact that like I've been in higher education for I think this is my eighth year and I'm just like I need I need to leave please oh honey I need to call it a day <laughs> like my friends who are um who who did an undergrad with me and then either took a year out or whatever and are now like finishing up like a postgraduate medical education are like I will still be a doctor before you and be done with academia before you and I'm like shh oh goodness <laughs> <laughs> Your time is coming. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Well, um, so wow, like I don't even know where to start to be quite honest. I've been really excited about having this conversation with you because um I just know that there's so much that we can talk about, and it's almost a question of where to begin and what to talk about. Um, so let's just start at the beginning. Like you're at med school right now. What made you decide Correct. that med school was for you and that you wanted to be a doctor? So just for context, I'm 26 um, and this is my second degree. So I wanted to do medicine the first time around. I've always wanted to do medicine. I was one of those really keen beans that was, April, I think my first work experience was age 14. And then every year I made sure I like worked and emailed and bombarded to just have two, two day shadowing here and there every year just to make sure I keep up like some kind of portfolio as it were of experience um no one in my family is a uh, medical anyway so I would be the, the first one unfortunately um I did not get the grades A level I got AAB and you need three A's um and at the time that I was doing it thankfully things have changed at the time when I was 18 you are not allowed to reset your A-level if you want to get into medicine. So you have to do it in two years, that's it, you are allowed to reset. So there's no opportunity for me to get that A. So my options were to do something else, as everyone is telling me to do, <laughs> or to go the graduate way. So that's how I ended up at Newcastle. So I ended up going to Newcastle University for biomedical sciences. Um, I'm <laughs> Yeah, and then literally I chose Newcastle because um, they had this opportunity to transfer onto medicine in your first year if you did well enough. And, you know, they, they're very good at advertising. When you got there, we realised, oh, there's only like four places available for like a year of 300 people. So anyway, I did not get that place, but I loved it so much nonetheless. Um, it gave me such good experience. I'm so happy that I went to Newcastle for my first degree. I mean, even now, talking to people who've come straight from school into med medicine, I feel like such an old woman saying, oh, back in my day, I'm so glad I had that first uni experience. I didn't have to do all of this and this. So I'm really glad that I did it. From there, during as well, I was, doing, I was still keeping up with my, my medical experience. And I took two years out after graduating in 2016. Not by choice. I didn't get it, didn't get in to med school, med school either of those times. And then finally on my fourth time, I got in. Um, and in those two years, I was working full time as a healthcare assistant with dis for disabilities. I did a little bit of traveling after I didn't get in the first year out just to have a little bit of break. And then I worked in a psychiatric hospital for a year full time again. And then I got in. So I've had a very convoluted journey. Uh, it was a combination of factors that were really, how can I say, there was just constant building blocks um, because 
there's your personal statement, which of course has to be perfect. But then there's this other thing called the UK CAT, although I think now it's called the UCAT, which is an entrance exam. So before you even apply, you have to take this long exam and different universities ask for different schools. And it all, you know, it's just a lot of things before you even ask, like before you can get to interview. And I think I always knew as soon as I got to interview, I'd be okay. It's just those kind of new tests and things that were kind of um, standing in my way. Um, so that's basically how I got into medicine. I really enjoy it. I'm in my third year now. It's my first clinical year, so I'm pretty much on full-time placement until I finish. I'm having a really great time. I love clinical years a lot more than pre-clinical years because I love biomed, but I finished it for a reason. And the first two years of medicine is biomed again. <laughs> so I'm just excited to be actually getting on the walls, talking to people, doing what I love. And it's very affirming to know that all those years did not go to waste because could you imagine if I spent what 12 years of my life dedicated to this career and I got to the wars and I didn't like it that would be very awkward so yeah I very much enjoy it so that's how I got to medicine you know what like after I was one of the people that like applied to med school I think for two cycles maybe three I can't remember it's I've blocked it out now because it was traumatic um it is it is it fully is and I it think- proper knocks you down because you just don't know what you're doing for six months and people always ask I was like well I don't know and then you spend six months of your life praying for this you pick out writing your personal statement you submit everything in October won't hear back until April and then it's all rejections and it's like now what prepare again for the next cycle in October it is just relentless yeah and it really it we, we kind of touched on this in in our conversation before the before I press record actually but like I do feel like medicine is definitely one of the career choices where the elitism really shines through in the application process because absolutely correct yeah because if you have someone who has any medical professionals around you already you have access to shadowing experience to like kind of just insight that um, someone from like a working class background from like a a background where your your parents are immigrants and so there's like more pressure to do the thing but also less access to the thing than you could possibly imagine precisely Mm -hmm. and on top of that like uh, we talked about this idea that there's a lot of people who will fork over money to get their personal statements checked to get sort of access to experiences and to um, sort of coaching and stuff like that for the med school Mm -hmm. application cycle and mm-hmm. like at the time when I first applied to med school, I think I was 17 and I was just like, oh, you know, I just wasn't good enough. And now I'm older. I'm like, I wish I could go back to every like young 17 year old person applying for the first time and being like, if you're a young person, if you're a person of color specifically, if you're like a second generation immigrant, if you're also like the first person in your family to even attempt this field, like the, the deck is so stacked against you that if you absolutely on the first try like you are the exception that proves the rule in terms of uk current doctors at the moment only 13 percent is in one three i think this is as of last year went to state schools that weren't grammar schools if you include state schools and grammar schools it still only goes to about 37 percent so the vast majority of doctors are privately educated which comes its own thing. I mean, I, I was, you know, it was one of those things. My parents were, you know, would be scraping money to send me to, you know, go get my personal statement checked and like we'd be working together. And it's just, it's just a lot. Whereas it's very exploitative, first mm. of all. Thankfully, the school I went to, although it was in a very middle class area, it was a state school and there was a charity that would um, help kind of students in my situation. And because of where the school was, there weren't many applicants. So I was just very fortunate that I, I always got accepted for these kinds of courses. So that's the only way I was even able to go to these courses, which were at the time about 400, 500 pounds each. And they were talking one day, two day courses. So it is very exploitative. Just sending your personal statement to someone to check over can cost you like a hundred pounds. It's it's wild. It's truly wild. And already, as you say, the odds are stacked against you. And then to have all this extra help, it's all money and money and money. And it's just, it's just very difficult. And then on top of that, if you go to a school that isn't so good, for example, the teachers as well don't know what to do with you. <laughs> they don't know how to send meds, like people to medical school. They're not encouraging necessarily their students to pursue this avenue because it's still that thing of you need to be an incredible student to get into med school. 
Whereas now, thankfully, there's more wide-ranging participation programmes. I know my university has one, which basically recognises there's good doctors everywhere. It's just they've not been given the opportunity. And so there's more of that coming, thankfully. Um, but there's something that I used to hate hearing um, because everyone knew I wanted to do it so badly. It's like, oh, if you work hard enough, you'll get there. I've been working very hard <laughs> for a very long time. And harder than a lot of people I know. Like, I've been working very hard to get in. How much harder can I be working? And it's not just, oh, you know, if you just try, sometimes just things are stacked against you and you just can't do anything about it. But anyway, thankfully I got in. I do have to admit, I'm on an undergraduate course. And as a graduate, that means I pay my tuition fees. I can't afford that. But a relative through marriage basically came into money and offered it to me to pay my tuition. So that's the only reason really I'm even here at this time because without that I wouldn't be able to afford to go on undergraduate course so there's literally you know there's barriers and barriers and barriers and barriers everywhere I think one of the things that even going to uni like in I lived with what like five other girls and I was the only one who went to state school and I think and that was the thing, even like biomedicine, just throughout the whole uni process, like I didn't realise there were even that many like private slash drama schools around. But mm-hmm. most of the people in uni had them. And also mm-hmm. I remember obviously doing biomed, I met a lot of people who, and <laughs> biomed, they always say like biomed is the course of failed doctors. It is. Um, <laughs> no. Well, in the first what? year, you know, when they put, ask you to put your hands up, why are you are you here? Because you didn't get into medicine. How, Ikra, how many people put our hands up in our first lecture? Oh my god. About ninety percent. I think in a cohort of three hundred and twenty odd people, that was spread over like six different biomed degrees, maybe about three hundred of us put our hands up. Yeah. The reason I was also there, because I was like, <laughs> I was no, actually, I realized in college that I didn't want to become a doctor, but then I was like, I'm going to become a lab scientist that is where I'm going oh, to first yes um and then I did labs in first year and I was like oh baby no 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 <laughs> no this is not for you let's find something else because you can't do this um and I think to be fair like a lot of people I would say probably the majority of people in biomed in my biomedical course didn't become doctors but a lot of them did find a different um avenue so like they either become like a lab scientist or they go and do phds in something else some people you know like i technically do still work in like science also i feel like i should say um we said there was a comment earlier that biomed is just failed medics i'd like to make it clear the career is not but a lot of how we enter biomed courses is through the eye of medicine does that make sense? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And I, not to do, not to besmirch biomedical scientists as a career at all. Absolutely, we're all here, we're all here with a degree in it. Um, yeah. I use that mm. degree. <laughs> I think it leads people to a lot of other avenues apart from medicine because medicine is so inaccessible. Some mm-hmm. people do give up because, like you said, it is a lot of hurt and a little bit of trauma, like to repeatedly put yourself out there like that. So I remember talking to a girl who basically she got like like four a stars and she had all the um the kind of the credentials and she still couldn't get into medicine and then I remember just kind of thinking what is this based on because she did really well in the UK cat as well and I was like I don't understand what getting into medicine is actually based on like it can't just be personality because some people some doctors don't have a great personality not all of them but some of them don't have that bedside manner so I actually don't understand what a lot of these institutions are looking for when they look for a medicine candidate yeah and I think a lot of them aren't quite forthright in what they're looking for either I think because already if the bar is just already you'll have the bare minimum is three A's already and that's that's literally not even enough and just as the years go on the standards go higher and higher and higher and higher I mean there's like a long-running joke that to be able to apply for a training program you're gonna have to have a Nobel Prize and it'll only be worth two points anyway like that that literal <laughs> it's just ridiculous and ridiculous and I'm in third year and I'm just having to think of all the fingers and pies I'm gonna have to do to prove like my dedication to a training program I'm literally a third year medical student. Like you can no longer just, even once you're here, you can't just have the degree and get a job. It's literally not even that simple anymore. So it's just task after task after task. And like, I don't, it, it's very, very true. Like, I don't know a lot of the time. Sometimes it is just luck of the draw, what it is on the day. Um, again, I was explaining to um, Ikra before that getting into medicine is, is very, very difficult. Already there's the competition. 
um, and you're effectively competing against your whole, whole cohort for the rest. I mean, I'm here and I get ranked by decile. Um, so competition doesn't stop. It is in people in my year's best interest that I do worse than them so that they get better points. So it, it's it's just, it doesn't stop essentially. Um, I used to think once I got in, I can just sit and relax a little bit because then the hard work is over. It is not. <laughs> that was that was, that was was more like a test. I think, I, f- I feel like trying to get in is a test of resilience. And if, you know, that's, that's like a, a benchmark. Although some people, lots of people get in on their first try, but the vast majority of people do not get in on their first try. Yeah. And I'm at peace yeah. with that. As long as, as long as I think, especially if you're coming straight from school, you see your friends getting offers, you want to go to university, you haven't got offers, you're distraught, it can feel like the world is ending, but not everyone gets in their first time, you know, take that year out, do some, get some employed work, stop mm. the work experience, you're 18 now, you can, you've got a year off, do some employed work, get the experience as well, get some money, enjoy yourself, so do some mentoring as well, for free. Um, and that's always kind of my advice is you know just don't you know don't take it too hard because it is it, it is quite it cuts deep I mean I've got in on my fourth time so how many rounds of rejections is that if we're t- talking four per time you know yeah I am um, I, I thought one thing that's become really interesting to me and very clear to me actually is um, in much the same way as you're kind of taught that science is this objective activity, that it's something that is like morally, like it act like science has the moral high ground as an activity, as a research activity. And I think a lot of us, especially as people who did like a first degree in science, I 100% will hold up my hand and be like, I was the dickhead that was like, <laughs> a BSc is better than a BA, don't fight me. Um, <laughs> bullshit don't come at me with that and it's interesting because now I have fully have to go hand in like cap in hands to every single person I was a douchebag to and say I am sorry everything is subjective and uh science is in itself just as racist sexist homophobic and and ist 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 oh. as everything else and I think mm-hmm. really interesting to me working with historians of medicine is realizing to what extent medicine really replicates a lot of the issues that we see in wider society and how because it's medicine and in many ways certain things are life or death because you're the what's at stake is someone's health at the end of the day and a lot of those issues will have much worse consequences in the healthcare field and I was just wondering if we could maybe talk about some of that because we'd be here forever if we really went into depth about it (laughs) I think definitely hopefully I think over the last year people have realized that like especially with the vaccine going out now and a lot of vaccine hesitancy in our own communities uh, a lot of people are asking well why do people have such a a strained relationship with healthcare why do people have such a strained relationship with healthcare providers and doctors specifically and a lot of people are sharing their stories of not being listened to or of um, healthcare providers being racist or or making a lot of assumptions based on someone's cultural or religious background I was just wondering, like, what is it like going into into the field and like starting your sort of clinical practice in this version of the world? I feel like there's like uh, a pressure on you as a black um, woman as well to to live out um, and and to, to to live out a better version of medicine for people like you who've had who look like you who have had a bad experience of it. Long-winded question, I know. <laughs> I would also actually add on to that because uh, you said like you think people are asking the question of why communities of colour have such a difficult relationship with healthcare and I actually would add on I don't think people are asking that question and I think that is the right question to be asking because people are putting it down to some sort of ignorance and they're putting it down to like a lack of information and actually it has much more of his- deeper historical roots than anything else that I think a lot of people either are aware of and are ignoring or um aren't just aren't aware of whereas obviously being like a black woman I'm like this goes so deep like this goes hundreds and hundreds of years they and it's baffling me how they're putting it down to oh this person is stupid because they're refusing to take this treatment it's actually like no the relationship is not there and I don't personally think this government really care about rebuilding that relationship but sorry yes Corin, I just wanted to add that in no I, I, I definitely agree and you know it's funny you should ask this question now um only two weeks ago something on placement I was with a surgeon 
um and he was he was just asking what I was doing later on that day and I was talking there like I'm doing some things like decolonizing curriculum and like he just never even heard of such a concept he's like oh what do you mean by that and I was like well I don't know what meningitis looks like on my own skin (laughs) what is erythema like I'm told like in COVID times I'll I'll only get an ambulance if I turn blue I don't go blue what then Um, and he'd and he literally was just like, I, it's never crossed my mind. And then he's just asking me more and more questions. And he asked me that question to say, what do you think is the issue with communities of colour not wanting the vaccine? They were like, especially when they know they're the most at risk, what's stopping them? And I was like, I've mentioned the things you've mentioned already. And I was saying there's an inherent mistrust. I mean, just picking Tuskegee syphilis trials. Mm-hmm. And he literally said, oh, people still remember that yes people still remember that it wasn't that long ago it was 40 years <laughs> it was 40 years that trial went on no people have forgotten that can you give a bit of context for anyone who maybe doesn't know what Tuskegee uh, is yeah so um it was a trial in black communities it was marketed as a vaccine essentially I think for syphilis um but what they did was actually infect the black community with syphilis and not treat them um, and then just kind of left them without treatment for the 40 years. And I mean, there's loads and loads of papers and studies and all this kind of stuff. It went on for a literal 40 years. But I mean, that's one very, very, that's one example. I mean, enforced sterilizations are still happening in communities mm-hmm. of colour. In my life, my auntie says she's got friends who didn't know she, they were sterilised like, until years later when they tried to have a baby. There's people who, um, contraception, when contraception first became, I don't know if you heard of the Dalcon shield, it was like a, a like a, an early version of the coil. It looks like a fishbone. It, it looks horrible to me. <laughs> I did not want that anywhere near me. But um, the Dalcon shield was marketed, especially in, black, um, in America, and it was given and kind of like really thrown down black communities' throats to have the shield as a method of contraception. So God forbid we populate. And there was a lot of issue with that Dalcon shield. Um, it caused a lot of a lot of problems, a lot of infection. But classically, hand in hand, when these black patients went to go talk about it, they weren't believed. Oh, it's this. Oh, you know, it's just a UTI. You've not got. It's not a problem. And just ignoring, ignoring until it festered so much that it became an issue. And then when they realised the shield was at fault, they uh, went into kind of have it removed and then wake up without a uterus because they thought whilst we're here let's just wash the whole thing out and they didn't know that like they didn't consent to it and again this is like this isn't hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago I think there's a lot of stuff in the media puts in black and white imaging so you think it's a long long time ago this stuff mm-hmm. like your grandparents were alive you know this wasn't a this this is still ongoing I mean if we're talking about ongoing the myth that black people have a high pain threshold is not an uncommon one at all and it was used to justify experiments on slaves that's what it was used to do genuinely without anesthetic it was used to justify experiments oh they have a high pain threshold it's fine so that was how that myth came about and it's still perpetuated Mm. in medicine and a lot of medicine yes you learn from a textbook but you learn on the job Mm. so as the the culture is kind of passed down you learn from your superiors this is how we do things around here you hear off comments oh okay that's that's how and then you remember that and a lot of medicine is teaching so I'll be teaching my medical students when I qualify and so on and so forth and you're just passing down that knowledge and if that's never questioned you're just passing down knowingly or unknowingly through the lens of yourself black people have a higher pain threshold but people have physically thicker skin so it's a lot harder to take blood out of them like things like that and there was a Pearson textbook, so not even like a small, small company. Big, big Pearson had a nursing and medicine textbook that was only taken off the shelves in 2017. It wasn't even the first edition. It was something like the third or fourth edition. So they revised it a few times and kept that bit in there. And it literally said black people have a higher pain threshold. There was a box for different ethnicities and cultures and what to expect from each of them. There was literally a subheading saying... Um, Asians, blacks, not even black people, just blacks. Mm. Uh, Jewish people are in there. Like, literally, plain and black and white, they have a higher pain threshold. So give them less opiates and medication seeking, things like this. And this is perpetuated in lots of different things. You know, the statistic that's been banded around um, about black women being far more likely to die in childbirth than white women in this country is also due 
to things like um, not being believed when they have serious symptoms. I personally have friends who were not given an ounce of painkillers until they're nine centimetres dilated. And for your listeners, 10 centimetres is when you're giving birth to the baby. So it, it's really, it's everywhere and it's not gone. And I think it's, some of it is just so insidious, not even questioned. And there's so many things. I mean, I could go on and on and on and on um, about different parameters we use in medicine, things like kidney function, there's something called an EGFR. If you're black, for some reason, you just times that number 1.5. And then that makes you less likely to get a kidney transplant because your EGFR is not low enough. So there's just lots and lots of things that just aren't questioned and need to be addressed. And I think it's through behaviour. And I think also the fact that there's not that many people. I mean, let's talk, if I'm talking about the black community in terms of black female doctors, I'm always on the hunt because I think I've met maybe five in my life. There's just not that many of us. And therefore, there's not that many of us to relate to our families and to our communities that this is a safe thing you know, to reassure, you know, to pass down that information from kind of a source that is familiar. Mm. So I think it's a whole different combination of things. We need more more black people and people of colour in med school because med school's already got so many barriers. We need more people in those higher places. And that's also a stepping stone. I really want to make the link to the episode that we had done with Angela Saini about her book, Superior, um, because that is the book about race science and basically like everything you've just said just shows like race science is actually still very much within the medical community and it's almost it's part of the backbone it's part of how modern medicine has evolved and it's just kind of almost like the poisonous um aspect that's never really disappeared because every day you go on twitter and there is somebody who went to a doctor particularly a black woman and just wasn't believed or having to continuously kind of go to a doctor about something and it just not being diagnosed or, or, or taken seriously. Um, and I think two high profile cases I can think of, particularly in the childbirth um, situation, were um, Serena Williams and Beyonce when they both had, when Serena Williams had her first daughter and when Beyonce had her twins, they both had difficult pregnancies. And particularly in Serena Williams' case, she was like, something is wrong. Mm. something is not right and she wasn't believed um and she basically had to put her foot down as much as she could while she was in pain and they went and checked her and she had I believe it was either a a blood clot in her leg or her lung I can't remember which one but basically if they had left it she would have died um that's how big it was and how dangerous and then you add in the fact that these are two of the most prominent black women in in the western world can't even save you from medical racism well that's the thing it's so proponent so imagine you know the random kind of black woman living down the street a very similar thing happens to her she's going to die no one's going to believe her um and also you know the chances of people kind of digging down deep enough into the circumstances around her death for her name to become out there in the press for us to kind of the black community and the rest of the world to kind of rally around her is so little it's just going to pass unnoticed until now Mm -hmm. we get to the point where black women are four to five times more likely to die in childbirth yeah and i think there's that and then there's also like to touch on one of the things that, that he said and also to touch on some of the stuff that we mentioned earlier about black people being experimented on. Um, with the Tuskegee syphilis trials, I think the really terrible thing about it that a lot of people are the most shocked by about the whole thing was at no point was that because they were trying to find a cure or because they were trying to find a treatment. They had the treatment ready, but what they wanted to do was they wanted to experiment on a large population to see what syphilis looked like if you just let it continue Run. through its natural course. Um, which is disgusting on so many levels and like horrible and just to, to know that you had treatment and a cure right there um, and you watched people, people who had willingly handed over like um, their health into your hands uh, to know that not only you were deceiving them and like doing terrible things to them without their consent, but that you could stop it at any point and you were like, no, let me just see how this goes. It was it's entertainment. It was, it was entertainment. It, it was. It's sick. Um, I think the worst thing is that I actually don't think it's entertainment. I think it's genuinely like morbid curiosity of just like, let's just see. Like, I'm not even in, I'm just interested to know how this goes. And it's like, wow. So you're just, you're just interested to see how another person's life is ruined. Um, And it also kind of goes into the thing that a black person's life is not seen as a whole person. 
yeah, they're not counting the whole equivalent of like let me play devil's advocate here but with a lot more power and a lot more harm and I, I think the thing that really struck me actually T when we were doing our undergrad degree actually was we got into the um, reproductive and developmental physiology module and the thing that struck me a lot was like how little we know about um, women's reproductive system specifically and um, I remember asking at one point like you know what was the reason like why is it so hard well why is there not, not very much research done beyond like the obvious sexism and um, the lecturer was like, well, um, you have to get informed consent to do any kind of like reproductive physiology research. So, you know, if you want like a strip of uterine tissue, you have to get the consent from a woman who's pregnant to like basically take this tissue at various points during her, her labor process. And, you know, if at any point she's hit the pain wall and said, fuck off, I'd withdraw consent. That's it. You're not going to get your tissue samples. And at the time I was like, there's something going on here that I, I've not <laughs> joined the dots, right? And it's not as simple as like, oh, these ethics, you know, considerations are now in place and they didn't used to be because the main reason why we have huge, such huge jumps in our knowledge of obstetrics and gynecology is for two reasons. The first being that obstetrics and gynecology was developed in the Muslim world whilst Europe was having its dark ages. So first off, there were a lot of, of black and Middle Eastern doctors who were working on that stuff who are not credited for that early knowledge anyway. Whilst people in, in Europe were dealing with the Black Death, people in Baghdad were performing the world's first cesarean. It is what it is. You guys were out here thinking, hmm, is washing a good idea? And people over there were like, hey, let's put this baby up. I mean, um, after the coronavirus campaign, I can you can see how many, how far we've come, because they're still telling people to just basically wash your hands. But the thing that kind of struck me as well is like now as someone who has like a bit more of an idea of the history of medicine, I'm like so much of our knowledge of like the reproductive system for women comes from women who are enslaved or who did not give consent for procedures. Women like Henrietta Lacks, for example, they had their autonomy stripped from them um, and their reproductive organs studied against that will. And that's how we even know what we know. So if you're gonna turn around and be like we don't know a lot at least tell us where the knowledge comes from because it to give us a sterile version of it is wrong when i was um talking about decolonizing the curriculum um in medical school i was also a point that was made because i've been in lectures where they'll spend seven slides telling you about the inventor of the x-ray and his life and he traveled to belgium and he did this and this and was born in this but the whole career of obsangine is built off the back of slavery and there's nothing there's nothing um so it's kind of very picky and cheesy because when i bring that up it's like oh we've not got time to like go into the background of things but how come i know so much about x y and z which was never examined on we don't need to know it but the lecture thinks it's like we should know context of where things came from so there's no context of where everything comes from if you're going to talk about context that's yeah. actually a really interesting point because when we were on our masters um and you're learning about like is it like Watson Crick and like the people who developed the DNA and the the one thing that they always make sure to tell you is that um about the woman that they didn't credit like who died before they could like give her credit and they erased her from the story but they didn't tell you that I can't remember either Watson or Crick is like a eugenicist <laughs> yeah let me tell you oh, that lecture that we had I'm, my eyes were open I was like what all mm-hmm. these people oh. yeah the wild thing is so it's Watson it's James Watson and he was given like a lot of awards and he was lauded in many ways so people brushed his sexism with Rosalind Franklin in stealing her results um under the look at it coming through with the names my brain wasn't allowing Mm-mm-mm. me but it was not the facts receipts I guess yes. I used to teach this to first years and like the amount of I'm, I'm, I'll get into it. So Watson and Crick stole Rosalind Franklin's results. So if they discovered anything, it wasn't necessarily the structure of DNA. It was her crystallography notes. Anyway. Um, <laughs> For it, the it, people who can't see what's going on, it could just be a very shady moving of the glasses there. <laughs> I have time today. But um, <laughs> it was one of those things where uh, she also passed away before they were awarded the Nobel Prize for it. So there was a, a question of like, perhaps if she had still been alive, they would have had to be, to, they would have, someone would have forced them to share accreditation, but they didn't. It was her, her lab partner who actually stole the results 
for Watson and Crick and then he insisted on having his name on, on the Nobel Prize and like the, the paper that they were accredited for, for the Nobel Prize. But Watson, he had like a really, really strong career afterwards. Uh, everyone was like, oh, well, you know, he's not made any other big discoveries. Strangely enough, he was not the sort of scientist to make a lot of big discoveries after the, that one particular discovery. But he had like a career that was successful enough that he like headed up his own lab. Um, and for ages, people were like, well, yeah, OK, he made some mistakes with the whole Rosalind Franklin thing. But actually, he's been very good at supporting women in science. So isn't that great? And then there's a bunch of people who more recently came out and talked about how racist he was, how he supported eugenicist practices. And um, he wouldn't shut up about it because he doubled down on his racism. And yeah. to the point where institutions took awards off him or took, you know, Professor Emeritus um, or honorary awards that they'd given him, affiliations with their institutions. And like for a white man to receive that kind of consequence, you've got to be doing some top tier racism. You know what I'm saying? Um, and it was one of those things where I remember reading about it and being like, just think of all the people who will have come across Watson in their career, all these people of color, all these women of color as well. And they will have heard like, oh yeah, he did some bad things when he was younger, but it was like, it was the fifties and everybody was a shitty person, but it's fine now because he, he helps women. And I'm just like, just say it with your chest. He helps white women. And you guys are like, that is enough diversity for us. <laughs> That's on box ticked. We're out here. The eugenicist. Let's talk about it. It's so interesting though, because in science they do like scientists love a bit of tea, you know. So like when there's like a bit of drama, like there was a bit of a fallout over this, they love to tell you that, but they don't give you the whole picture, especially if it pertains to race. They're like, let's erase that out of the picture. No need, nothing to see here, nothing to see here. Yeah, like um uh the, the one pushback that I get most, like in the teaching that I've done on the history of science, is when I bring race into a discussion so one of the clearest examples we have is like when we're talking about like the, the dropping of the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and I teach these students and quite a lot of the students who take the history of science courses are science students and I think it's great that science scientists should absolutely engage with history of science at the undergraduate level okay. but they are vexed when they realize that science is not like free of you know guilt and shame <laughs> as it should be um, and so one of the things that I get is like I'm like oh well you know one of the ways in which we like the Americans specifically justified the dropping of the bomb on Hiroshima and then on Nagasaki is they they othered the Japanese like and here's all this literature on something called the yellow peril narrative um so let's talk about that and these students having to confront racist sources these white students being like oh but like but American lives were saved in the in the invasion like otherwise they would have invaded Japan and this many soldiers would have died and I was like yes instead this many civilians died in these civilian cities so yeah let's challenge the narrative that you've grown up with it's not comfortable let's talk about it and let's talk about what the role that race plays another example that I think really struck me was we got the uh, first years to watch Hidden Figures excellent film Love it. To, to write a review of it like that told us something about the culture of NASA in the in the 50s and 60s and I got this one essay which because everything's anonymized I assume like in my heart I was like this was written by a white woman um because the author of this essay argued that these women these computers who worked on NASA flight projections um were definitely subject to sexism but not to racism and I'm just like are you telling me that at the height of the civil rights movement, three black women could not possibly have been subject to racism in their workplace. And in hidden figures, there's a literal subplot line about the toilets, like yeah, black and white like, toilets. That's a literal subplot line there. I was like, is segregation not an important theme in this? Were we watching the same film? It's the whole point of the film is that they're black women. They are, <laughs> and they're black. <laughs> and they're women. And they're black women. Like, uh, uh, okay, never mind. 
yeah I mean okay. the thing that vexes me the most about that whole subplot about um the toilet sign and like um, when Kevin Costner so if you haven't seen it Kevin Costner comes through in all his bodyguard glory and breaks the colored sign and the white <laughs> sign from the toilet and that was the only part of the film that made my eye twitch because like white savior white savior but yeah. yeah so for those who did not know that never happened uh in fact yeah, actually, um the woman that Taraji P Henson um plays um, Catherine she would routinely walk into the white women's bathroom all the time um and when they looked at her funny would just be like would just look at them as though like I dare you to say something I'm a pee here now um so she she would absolutely was not the sort of person that would have run across the courtyard to the to the the other bathroom first of all and secondly there was a sign actually that used to go up in the lunch canteen all the time like every single day there was a sign that would say like you know this is where people are not white sit and um one of the other computers a woman who wasn't like given like a like characterization in the hidden figures film but like actually a, a, another woman who did a similar job every day she, she would go to the canteen look for the sign and be like oh there's my sign and then she would like unhook it and put it in her bag and take it home with her <laughs> like i dare you i dare you come to come tell me that like this is the whites only area i dare you where is the sign sir is there a sign? Like these are the acts of resistance that, like, even though they're in the book, which is written by a black woman, like they they were too spicy to make it into the film because <laughs> you mm-hmm. need the white mm-hmm. safety narrative. And I'm just like, you do, you do. We, we can't do anything without it. You know, we're just helpless savages who need white help. <laughs> the one thing that I think is really really interesting, actually, is like there is simultaneously like we said, like this idea that communities of color uh, in the UK are backwards and like not prepared to accept like medical help or medical advice. Um, but also this like really disparaging attitude about young people of color who apply to med school because it's because it's it's like, oh, well, you know, are you just applying to your med school because your immigrant parents would like you to be a doctor? And it's interesting because the one thing that I got going to med, like applying to med school was like, oh, but are you sure you're doing this because it's what you want or is it because what it's what your parents want? And I just think, to what extent is like that rich white boy called Grant being asked the same question? Like, has anyone questioned whether or not, you know- Yeah, he's not. Mm-hmm. has been expected of him because it's what the family does and he's been, I don't know, going to do something- Pressured hard. into it. Yeah, yeah like no one's, is, mm. is no one pressuring, you know, Hugh into it? Like- Is Hugh it, not oppressed? I, Yes. <laughs> He's called Hugh, he must be. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, it, it's weird because I think the medical establishment will revile patients of colour, but then also like do everything it can to also stomp on um and undermine, yeah. And undermine um doctors of colour. I think the thing that kind of struck me was there was a recent case, I think from last year, from just before the COVID pandemic, so probably about this time last year actually where um, there was a woman who was originally from Somalia and she was a doctor and she had, and her patient- Just Dr. Balagaba? Yes. She's, Le- she's Lester, so we know her well. Yeah. Not personally, but the case is really big here, yeah. Yeah, and so th- there was a case against her of medical negligence or medical malpractice. It was one of those things where all of the doctors who testified for on her behalf were like, look, I wouldn't have done anything any, any differently sometimes as much as we try, like we're not perfect and we won't catch everything. And there are many cases like this in which like you do your best as a doctor, but ultimately you lose the patient and we're not superhuman. She has been struck off the medical register, I think. Um, she's back. She's back. Oh, I'm glad that she's back. I'm glad. She's back. She won her appeal. Um, oh, I, there's so many layers to that story because it's not even as simple as that. I mean, she it was like her second day back from maternity leave mm. um she was asked to cover so her consultant was away unexpectedly so she was asked to cover his patients as well as her patients the it system was down so she couldn't get the blood results quick enough it was really huge multifactorial the consultant had who like left kind of very short notice he of course faced no consequences yeah no consequence whatsoever um and the family kind of went after her mm. rather than him i mean it 
if you're not white and you're a woman, you're something like it depends on the specific demographic that you are, but it's more than double as likely to get reported to the GMC mm. just just by existing. So there's already that to contend with. And having been to a few talks about her cases and the people who are involved, they like it's been kind of said over and over again that played a very big factor in that she was a black Muslim woman and they wanted a scapegoat and she was a nice easy one to pin it on. But um she did appeal. So she's not she's not struck off. She's still practicing as far as I am. I'm so glad um, you did that because funnily enough, the fact that she was struck off. Was maybe like, double check it. Don't quote me because now yeah. I'm doubting myself. I'm pretty sure she's back. Yeah. Now uh, the fact that she was struck off and like the fact that the case was brought against her was very widely reported. The the specifics of the case like that you mentioned were not widely reported on, and neither is not at all. There was even an appeal process. So that's no quite interesting. Doesn't so, make the story as juicy if you know the facts. I know. Right? How can we get all head up over nothing? No, no exactly. Hmm. But yeah, you know, and it, those things weren't in the press. All you saw in the press is this baby died, and it's your fault. Hmm. There was lots of other things like staff on the ward. This poor child was in uh, a bay, but the child before them that was in the bay was for not for no resuscitation, and there was some confusion. So when the team arrived, they thought it was the previous child that was not for resuscitation. Because they started resuscitation, they're like, no, this this child's doing ask to not resuscitate. So they stop resuscitating, and they realise actually, no, it was this is a different child. Let's start resuscitating. So that's another factor. But mm. is it like the parents? I think so, there was lots of different issues. I, I mean, I won't go into the ins and outs, but um, there's it was very much multifactorial, and definitely like most people would not have reacted differently. Mm. Yeah, and I think it's that thing of um, w- the way I see it, like the, the medical medical institutions and the, the field of medicine is a hard place to be as both a patient and as a doctor. And I think as well of like the different specialties and, and how there's almost like this weight on you of like, do you go into a specialty that needs you um, the most because the representation is next to nothing do you or do you go into like to what extent does your cultural and background your ethnic background um to what extent has it kind of shaped what you want to do as a doctor um going forward is what i wanted to ask i guess yeah it's, the timings of these questions are quite apt i think because there's been a few things in the past weeks that you know i i'm aware of things i have to face generally just being who i am mm. There's some things I wasn't aware of. Um, and so an example is, I mean, it's very early to decide what I want to go into, but again, like it's kind of finding the balance, getting fingers and pies, you know, because if you want to get that job, you have to have evidence and experience. So one of my um, interests is OBS and Gyne and women's health and sexual health, things like that. Um, and I was in an OBS and Gyne careers talk and it wasn't specific to the university. It was like, in, it was in, a national kind of Q&A situation on Zoom. And it was actually um, held by BAPIO, if you've ever heard of them, uh, British, British Association for People of Indian Origin, I think. But they're good anyway. They're very, very good. Um, so I was invited. So I went to have a little listen. And there were four OBS and Grind doctors. So there's um, two consultants and two registrars. So before you consultancy and each of them did their own kind of presentation. It wasn't all, this is what I do with my life, but it was, they all kind of mentioned specific things. All of them mentioned that there's a really high um, level of attrition in OBS and Gyne. And by attrition, I mean people essentially dropping out of the training program and then not being replaced. So that's attrition. And the, large majority of that was due to very high cases of harassment bullying and racism and all of them said this despite only one of them being black it was in such a thing that the Royal College of Surgeons are doing like drives and things to kind of stamp it out because it's such an issue Um, and I was not aware of that at all so already in a career that was founded on race on slavery that disproportionately affects black women in childbirth and you know thinking I'll forge my career to try and make those things better 
even getting my foot in the door will even finish my training so it's that was already kind of like another kick in the teeth as it will <laughs> and I think there's I mean obviously you're going to get this across different places I know surgical specialties tend to be um, a bit more um, discriminatory as it were um, some so not all is changing but there are some surgical professions that's a bit old boys club you know um, but yeah so that really shocked me that I was as high as and it was a third of people so if you know if you said to your if you went to looking at university and like oh a third of people on our course drop out you're like what so that really mm. shocked me because it's so hard getting that training contract in the first place to then think I'm literally just going to give this up it must be big of course there's other factors like work-life balance is quite hard with obs and guy because there's lots of on call during the night and things, things like that it's quite litigious because it's people's babies but that was a big big factor I didn't know about so yes it's interesting that you mentioned that is was it harassment from patients was it harassment from other doctors like did they say a combination so I think because I asked I went to a few other talks since that one and I deliberately asked that question at every single one and another it was white women and she was like I can't speak on the racism front I'm ashamed to say I wasn't aware of what was going on before last year and I like I can't comment on that but I do know it happens but it's a combination of things so in terms of the sexism front for example on a patient level it will be the male partner talking over his female partner or talking for her mm. or asking to see a male doctor rather than a female doctor and then in terms of the workplace there's a crossover between the obs and gyne team the midwives the anaesthetists and they all kind of have to constantly work to and agree on a plan I think there's some culture there kind of a bit territorial maybe that they kind of clash somewhat and I think that may be another reason that I've been told so like work workplace culture and I mean I, I don't know about you guys but I've definitely been in some toxic workplaces <laughs> so I think that's also a contributing factor um so yeah I think it's a few things but I think yeah it's very interesting I didn't know the stats were so high and didn't realize it's such a big big problem to the fact that the Royal College are having to do something about it yeah if I'm delivering your baby and you still have time to harass me then you're not deli- you're not having a baby right mm, like, I don't <laughs> like, like you know we're trying to we're all trying to make sure like a healthy being comes into this world but actually and this is where maybe like this instances on tv like you know like a, a Grey's Anatomy or whatever where you know the person comes in and they say oh no I want the white man doctor yeah and just simply kind of putting you out of work that way Mm-hmm. Yeah. and you know as unfortunately the way we work is we're told to be nice to the patient still mm. you know I'm here to help you let me help you you know you can't as much as you'd want to be effing and jeffing and you know walk off you can't always walk off and things are much better now like um the BMA have a racial harassment charter and they're doing some more bystander training with most trust so, so things are getting better in that we're not beholden to have to stand there and face racism mm. or whatever from a patient, especially, I mean, there's lots of things we talk about aggressive patients not to tolerate it, but nothing about underhand comments or like, oh, I wasn't expecting you to speak English. Um, that's one that my colleague had before. She was like, what language are you expecting me to speak? <laughs> so just things like that. So now I think the workplace is changing slowly, slowly, slowly. But yeah, I think there is also that level of, kind of customers knows best not knows best but comes first like how to please the patient and things like that so it's a bit I mean let's not even talk about people there's some people who are rejecting the Pfizer vaccine because I want the British one you mean the one that's uh, clinically proven to be less efficacious but okay yes yeah I mean xenophobia is wild yeah. racism is wild in the way it manifests and um, but actually there's, there's a really interesting example that I um had in a conversation with a friend who is in their final year of med school now, actually, and he's like a white man. I would don't hold it against him, though. <laughs> I'm not <I'm> joking, <laughs> but he, he's a good egg. And he was talking about like one specific issue that he had with one of his last placements, where there was someone who came in, was like quite proudly supporting um, some neo-Nazi tattoos, and immediately, because like, he was someone who had been in this like in, in this place before as an outpatient, and. Uh, he had been really, really like adamant that he did not want to be treated by a doctor who was not white. And uh, he, he was kind of like having this conversation with me and he was just like, it is 
difficult because to what extent do we lean into it and say, okay, well, I'm not going to allow you to racially harass my um, colleagues. And so it's unfair on my colleague to expect to be dealt, to be dealing with your white power nonsense. And so mm-hmm. in some ways, like, yes, okay, you should be treated by a white doctor, because if you're going to racially harass somebody at, the, at their place of work, then that's not, why, why should they have to be put up, putting up with that? But he was like, I do wonder to what extent, you know, he's getting what he wants. Mm-hmm. Um, like, and what's the line? And I was like, I think this is the, I was like, this is a great place to have a conversation about what white doctors can do. I was like, because mm-hmm. if your black colleague is, is like working and the neo-Nazi man walks in, like she, she shouldn't have to deal with that, right? That shouldn't no. be a problem, right? And, but it's not about, what does she have to do to protect herself in that situation? It should be what will all of her white colleagues, because let's be honest, it's a workplace that will be primarily white, even in mm-hmm. an area that's as diverse as where he was working. What are they going to do? Like, because it's not her sole responsibility to deal with the racist patient. Um, mm-hmm. and I think sometimes like people often, when this conversation comes up, they're like, oh, you know, like it's, it's so difficult for, you know, the doctors of color to like deal with this or, you know, let's talk about like the way that this is going to affect these doctors. And I'm like, or you could talk about how your white doctors are going to step in, take this patient as far away from the doctor of color to begin with. And then also what they're going to be doing to show that, that white racist patient that A, their behavior is unacceptable, B, that there are policies in place to stop them from like receiving um, treatment if they carry on in this manner. And mm-hmm. see, like the reason why they've been taken away from the doctor of color is not because um, they're right in any way, shape, or form. And I think, obviously, having that conversation with a racist patient takes time. Like tackling mm-hmm. the racism of a patient takes time. But I think if even if it was as simple as saying, "We're going to log this on your notes that you have racially harassed a member of staff," like this is going to be, this is going to exist in some permanent form beyond this interaction. Like you're on a warning, babe. Mm-hmm. Even having something like that in place would, I think, go. But it's not the responsibility of the doctors being racially racially harassed, or the nurses, or the healthcare providers being racially harassed to do that. So everyone else needs to step up. Yeah, but I would say that I feel like most neo-Nazis probably don't care. <laughs> like you can have a conversation, but like that conversation, not going to do like that much more yeah i mean i suppose the neo-nazis is quite an extreme example but um i think what ik was saying is correct and we're trying i mean i say we generally um like i mentioned there's a bma charter now um bystander training is very very slowly being rolled out at my university there's like a kind of working group that kind of tackle with medical racism and other bias actually so i and along with a few colleagues um, and staff members as well, did bystander training for the first time. As in, like we made the package for some reason. The med school only wanted it to go out to first and third year. We've bid for that to be for all years, and also staff because a lot of the time they are the perpetrators. So say like I was like to technically like for example, if a racist person comes in, I would be like, where is the manager? Mm-hmm. The, ma- the, the the person on duty, the highest person on duty, needs to come and deal with this. Mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. typically you know if that person is racist or whatever they're going to be a grace they're going to be racist sexist it's just going to put a, it can put a whole lot of people in danger like please mm-hmm. get the manager in the place and then that person should be the one to be like you will be treated here but you need to rein it in because we actually do have the right to refuse you this is where I'm like i'm kind of like i'm not really here for a conversation i'm here for being told what the fuck is up yeah mm-hmm. like <laughs> put in their place and if they don't if like if they don't want to act correctly bye-bye there are some in terms of like i mean it's not on, it's not uncommon for police to be called onto the ward but again the threshold for that is quite high it's not going to be an offhand comment that the police get called for it's going to be the neo-nazis i don't want to be with like so still but yeah you're right there needs to be everyone needs to step up it's not on the onus of the person being abused to raise the alarm to report everything because also if i get if i report it Already, I'm a black woman. Um, first of all, people are going to take me seriously. People are going to think I'm being, I'm overreacting. I'm being oversensitive. It's part of the job. I should just get on with it. 
Um, and then from there, that could affect my working um, relationship with people on the wards and things like that. And I feel like if I'm with someone who also witnessed it and they can back me up, then that helps a lot more. So whilst so there is value, because I think some people are like, well, you were there, you reported it, I didn't need to do anything. But there's value in numbers. And I think a lot of stuff is there's missing data, especially with our medical school. A lot We've had to convince them there's a problem because they didn't think there was because people weren't reporting it. But when we you know, did or had all these conversations and you know asked people, they realised, okay, this is actually an issue and it's still with. So it's having that data in the first place is like the stepping stone to actually do what Icarus said, to log all these incidents and to record it. Even if there's no consequence to the patient itself, at least the data is there and there's other problems that needs to be tackled. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thanks so much for talking to us. Um, I feel like I've learned so much about just what the medical field looks like. Like, I think... The minute most of us decide that we're not going to apply to med school anymore we turn around and we just kind of don't think about it anymore beyond like our own oh there's a lot of trauma you want to leave behind from all the apply because <laughs> <laughs> i think so many of my friends who are in med school are are white and straight and you know in many ways able-bodied like, able-bodied privileged in a lot of ways and it, it's nice to like be you know on the receiving end of some of their questions where I'm like oh yeah as, as your resident person of color friends I can help on, with this and it's nice to know that a lot of the people that I know who are medics are approaching the field and their practice with a lot more sensitivity and understanding of what these issues are and going into it with their eyes open but I think there's just also so much more that needs to change institutionally in medicine before like black doctors can be allowed to practice without having to deal with racism and um, black and brown patients can feel like adequately listened to by their healthcare providers and like really build up that trust that's missing between all our communities Absolutely. and healthcare. There's so many levels, just things like, I mean, is it a crime to ask that black patients kind of appear throughout our exams and not just when it's HIV? Like this is a black person, right? diagnosis is HIV this person um it's Indian right it's TB like that's that is how it is sometimes and that's detrimental on many levels because first of all the people because this is a university so people are here to learn these students don't know and this is what they think is fact if they go onto the ward naturally their bias is going to be like this black person has to be HIV or malaria or diabetes so already they're doing Black people, for example, a disservice because black people can have TV and they can have the flu. Like they can, they can have like it's meningitis, all that kind of stuff. But also you're missing all the white patients that also have HIV and malaria mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. And they get missed. So it's like a just a simple, small, small things. Like making sure you have a representative sample in exam questions. Just a small thing like that can make such a difference. Um, and so that's kind of what I'm working to do, trying work to do you know with my small small resources um (laughs) and just trying to like kind of tackle that side of it as well I mean dermatology is an obvious one it's all by looking most of it and today I was on a vascular ward and a lot of it is like different color changes and what it means and I was like well what would that look like on me and the doctor's like I'll be honest don't know it's very difficult Um, (laughs) he's like I've genuinely missed gangrene on darker skinned people because is really hard to spot on dark skins and gangrene is life is limb is a what do you call it limb losing mm. so uh, um, you know the i don't see color i'm gonna need doctors to see color absolutely you have to i'm gonna need you have to you can't be colorblind the nuances between colors because even the difference between a light-skinned black person and a dark-skinned black person how the colors are going to show I need everyone to just put a little bit more thought into mm-hmm. this you know because mm-hmm. we when like you just said like that is a gangrene is very serious to miss it's not like yeah oh you it's missed amputation like a, yeah yeah mm. god and yeah. you know there's it's, it's a shame that a lot of the work is having to first of all be done by students Second of all, be done by the students of colour who is disproportionately affecting. And what that does, there's already an attainment gap. It's already very hard for us to progress through the course, progress through our training. And then we're going to have to give up more of our time to put all our energy in this resources when our white counterparts are just carrying on with their degree, no issue. Like, the onus should not be 
on us to do it. Granted, you need our input because having a white voice for everything and just having what people assume needs to be done is incorrect. But then the owner should not be, I should not be having to beg my head of year to know what meningitis looks like on myself. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, the, there's it's a partnership has to be involved. I'm, I'm actually quite grateful, not grateful, and stop saying that word because I should not be grateful for crumbs. But I am happy that there are staff members who work with us and who I know are on our side who can bridge that gap to kind of give us a bit of clout, really, to be honest, um, mm-hmm. so that we're not just medical students who can be swatted away. So it's it's a collaboration is needed for sure. Uh, but yeah, it's just things I challenge every day if I can, you know, and I, I'll just ask, like, I'm not being confrontational about it. It's, it's a genuine question. Like, what would that look like on me? And he, if you can't say, I mean, he said you can look at the soles of the feet sometimes, that's an indication, but it's yeah. just, you know, and dermatology is obvious one. Mm-hmm. There's so many hidden ones and that's like, that's the obvious one. And still, I mean, there's a medical student who's been a brilliant resource called Mind the Gap, dermatology book, and he's collated uh, most dermatological skin conditions on non-white skin that have been like approved clinicians and stuff um, from St George's. So that's a really good handbook, but he's had to do that in his own time for free. He's made it a free resource as well. And it should have been done from day dot, to be honest. Mm. This is what I mean when I'm like, this is why we need to speak to the manager, for like the course leaders, the people within the institution, like the lecturers, like this is, everybody should care about this and this should take everybody's effort because, and these are also seasoned professionals as well. Like, honestly sometimes for them to make the leap of how it would appear on on darker skin might not be as difficult as student doing it because they maybe mm-hmm. they've seen it and like, oh actually it appeared this way they should have years of knowledge so this is where the elders need to step up mm-hmm. like yeah. because you know for real oh. I just want to plug one thing to the readers I want I think if people are interested in terms of kind of like well, I'm going to say like the medical abuse of black people, but the history behind it. I read mm-hmm. a book um, called Medical Apartheid by Harriet A. Washington. Great book, gives you a lot of insight. And also she does interview people who were directly affected by these things or people's family members who can kind of talk to the, the situation. It is, I can honestly say that I started reading this book. I think we're in our master's Vikra and I still haven't finished it because I go through phases of picking it up and then when I and then I get really angry and then I have to put it down mm. and this is it, like it's taking me years to get through this book because like every time I read it like I'm like I'm like what what like yeah. what but I do think everyone needs to read it because I think it's oh it goes so much deeper than a lot of people realize yeah so yeah I would say everyone should read that where can people find um the work that you're doing with the charter so I have been on another podcast called the Hippocampus Podcast, bit of a mouthful, um, and there I talked more specifically about the charter and the things that we're doing in med school and what the medical students can do. So yeah, I think in terms, if you are in medical school, it's really important to kind of get together like-minded people. I mean, we have a Medics ACS, which is African, African-Caribbean Society as well, so we all support each other in that kind of aspect as well. Um, I think support and just like-mindedness is really important. So that medical school, find your BMA rep, um, inquire if there's not a group make one and start doing some small small changes you know <laughs> what a beautiful Love that. place to leave that um but that was a beautiful place to leave it thank you guys for listening oh, thank you this has been lovely so where can you find us alicia you can find us on instagram at brown girls do it you can find us on facebook at brown girls do it and twitter you guessed it at brown girls do it and if you want to get in touch um, and be on the show or give or nice anything. constructive yeah. lovely polite feedback then you can email us at brandgirlsdo at gmail.com Beep.